Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews. Your ESV um, title to this says the letter to the Hebrews. We'll talk about that a little bit today and the structure of this book, letter, sermon. Um, there is a lot to read of introductory material on this book, uh, on this message, this passage of scripture. It's it's tremendous, and um, I have spent probably more time reading in preparation for an introductory sermon than I have any other sermon series I've done. And I had thought about trying to go, go through this in three points and getting through the first few verses, and then I pared that down uh, to two points midweek, and then last night I said, I'm not going to get through the first point. I, this is as far as it'll go. So... It'll, it'll, it's going to take some time, but I, I do, I think it, we need to set the stage for what is discussed, and it's, an, it's such an important, um, the information that's shared in, in Hebrews is really crucial to understanding how the Bible fits together, right? It helps us understand covenant theology. And so I, I wanted to kind of think about something that's, that's interesting here. I mean, there's a theme throughout Hebrews that is relating Jesus to everything that came before. And if there's one thing that, that if you read sort of the media today or media pundits, um, it's, it's anathema to compare two cultures and to declare one to be superior, right? Cultural relatives will accuse you of ethnocentrism before you can finish your sentence. And... Um, and so I thought it was interesting that as I was reading through Hebrews, and I would encourage you to take some time the next few weeks to just read through the entire message as one block, what you'll find is that this author, who himself was a Jew, unashamedly argues that Jesus is greater than every prophet, priest, and king who came before him. He is superior. He is supreme. His, the point he makes is the supremacy of Christ over everyone and everything belonging to the Old Covenant. It would have gotten him in trouble for sure <laughs> with his culture. We learn that Jesus is greater than the prophets. We learn that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the priests and the sacrificial system that accompanied their work in the temple. So in other words, Christ supersedes and concludes the Old Covenant. He'll say that very directly in Hebrews 12, and we'll see it in just about every chapter leading up to it. He ushers his people into a superior covenant, a better hope. And so the author of Hebrews shows how the Old Covenant really served as a shadow. And what he's, what he's doing there is he's, he's, while he's calling it a new and better covenant, so that there's discontinuity between the old and new, He's also showing the connection to the old so that it's not, a rad it's not so radical that, there's nothing, that it has nothing to do with the old. It's superior, but it's a development. It's a fulfillment of the old. And so as the shadow of things that 
in the Old Covenant, they now find fulfillment in Christ. He'll make that clear over and over again. So this was precisely what these recipients needed to understand as they, they struggled to adapt to a culture that was hostile to them. Uh, they, they needed to heed the warnings that we'll see multiple times, some very severe warnings of apostasy and of returning to the expired practices of the Old Covenant. And although they had apparently received the gospel decades prior, they were like infant believers at this point. So that he would say, you still need milk. You should be teachers by now, feeding on the meat of the word, but I'm still needing to give you milk. You're like infants in the faith. We'll see that in Hebrews chapter 5. So Hebrews really is addressed to Christians who are tempted to accommodate their faith in order to relieve cultural pressure. And so every believer, and this isn't just for the original or first reader, the original audience, every believer needs to know that Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer, than every alternative. And so we'll read Hebrews chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 4, which is one continuous sentence in the Greek. Um, and then we will uh, look at two things. Well, actually, I planned on looking at two things this morning, but we're just going to look at one. And that's the authorship. So let me pray and ask the Lord for his help before we read it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to begin this new series in such an important and crucial uh, portion of Scripture. Lord, you, you have given all of your word, every, every book, every letter, uh, to, to support our faith, to encourage us, equip us for the work of ministry, to grow and mature us into godliness. And Lord, there are some aspects and some passages that stand out more to us. And it seems like in this case, this entire letter, this entire message of Hebrews is, is so crucial to understand Christ in relationship to the Old Covenant. Lord, it's, it's something that even as I prepared, I, there was some fear of, of getting it wrong saying something that, you know, overstating a case. Or, Lord, not, not taking every avenue and approach that, that, can, that is, is possible, Lord, but we could study this the rest of our lives and not plumb the depths of it. And we look forward to continuing to study these things through all eternity, to understand more of what Christ has done for us and the the way in which he has fulfilled and satisfied every demand of the old covenant. Something we could never do. And given us his righteousness that we can rest in that truth this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be confident in your word as we listen to it. As we sit under its preaching, Lord, may you speak to each one of us wherever we are. Maybe some of us need to be convicted of just thinking that, that we're in control that we are the ones who dictate our future. Lord, we need to come humbly before you and repent of our waywardness. 
Lord, all of us need to hear the comfort and love and grace of the gospel message as well. Lord, may we hear that loud and clear as it's proclaimed throughout this letter. And Lord, may you be glorified as we study this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of, of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, this is the one point we'll get to this morning, and that's an inspired author, an inspired author. The one thing we can say for certain Actually, we can't even say this for certain. <laughs> but it does have a, an indication that the author is male. And you get that from Hebrews chapter 11, 32. And the only reason why I say you can't absolutely be certain of this is because some have, rec- have suggested that they, u- they were subtly using a male pronoun in order to continue, you know, just to disguise the identity of the author. I, I don't accept that explanation, but uh, that is one of the reasons why they, some of them have proposed uh, Priscilla, you know, who, who had taught um, Paul at one point. So, you know, Priscilla and Aquila. So some have proposed her as an author, and and frankly, we'll see a lot of different proposals this morning. But in verse 32, it says, What more shall I say, chapter 11, 32, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. That that participle, to tell of, is to tell is a male participle. That's the only indication that you have of the gender of the author. And if it's not a male, then uh, which most people reject, that it's that it would be um, Priscilla. But we move from there to consider the the various names that have been put forward. The Apostle Paul, many of you probably know, is the most prominent proposal. As early as the the second century, Clements of Alexandria was attributed this letter to Paul, and. Even there, though, he acknowledged some differences in style. Uh, it doesn't sound like Paul. So how do we understand that? Well, there's a, his explanation was that it's a translation from the original Hebrew by Luke. So Luke took the Hebrew original and translated it into the Greek, and therefore you have really some of the Greek, the expert Greek that is contained in this letter because of Luke's um, penmanship. And it doesn't quite sound like Luke either. That's because he's really just translating Paul. Okay, so that's one of the earliest explanations for this being Paul. Uh, In the third century, Origen offered that Paul's student wrote the teaching of Paul from memory. So he took Paul's teaching and then from memory wrote it out 
And so he would have been someone who was eloquent in speech, eloquent in, in the Greek language. Um, but if you, if you study the language in the original, it doesn't have the characteristics that you would expect of a translation. Right? There's no indication of this, and so much of this is just is speculation. Um, in the fourth century, you have the, really the, the Greeks settling on Paul. You do have some exceptions, Irenaeus, Gaius, and Hippolytus, among those who don't take this to be Pauline in authorship. But then the Latin fathers were, were pretty much non-committal up until Jerome and Augustine affirmed Pauline authority. Okay, so they accept that Paul wrote it. And, and there is an indication that they were desiring to solidify the canon at this point, to solidify the place of Hebrews in the canon of Scripture. Right? So most early church fathers followed along accepting Jerome and Augustine's authority on, on that decision. You get to Aquinas in the 13th century, and he accepts Pauline authorship based upon tradition. In the 18th century, this I know I'm skipping way ahead, but 18th century Scottish minister John Brown argues that we should favor that tradition, that early tradition, without strong internal evidence to the contrary. So unless you have something you know, very obvious and strong in the text itself, we should favor the early tradition of Pauline authorship. Now, I, I tend to agree with that. My problem is that I think there is strong internal evidence that it's not Paul. So you get to the 16th century, and the reformers are not unanimous. Zwingli accepted Pauline authorship. Martin Luther and John Calvin were pretty confident that it wasn't Paul. They, um, they follow Cardinal Cajetan uh, and, and Erasmus. In, in the critiques of Pauline authorship. So there, the three things that, that Calvin iterates in his commentary on this is he says, if, if this is Paul that's writing, you have to explain why all of a sudden it becomes anonymous. Right? We read the first four verses. This would be the only time Paul doesn't include his name in those opening lines. Uh, so why would he do that? Why would he write anonymously? Some have said, well, it was for his safety, and I think Aquinas argues that, that there was some sense of keeping uh, his name out of it, partly because he was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and this is a letter to the Jews, and so he's, he's not leading with his apostolic authority. And then, and then the assumption is also that he's, he's writing to people who are familiar with his authority and who aren't who aren't concerned that, that he doesn't have the authority to speak to them, right, as an apostle. So some have, have tried to explain away why he doesn't use his name here, that they knew who it was coming from, and they were friends, and therefore, but it's, it's just, it's, it's odd. And if he was concerned for safety, if there was a concern that maybe he was writing to a hostile audience who would, who would be angry to know that this was written from him, well then, why would he mention Timothy at the end? When he concludes the, the message, in the end, he references Timothy. So it's like, I, don't want, I, I need to protect my name, so I'm going to keep it out of there, but I'm going to throw Timothy under the bus. You know, let him get in trouble for this. That doesn't seem right. You can look at that in Hebrews 13, 23. As I've already mentioned, it lacks Paul's style. It lacks Paul's imagery, his typ typical imagery in his writing. 
It also lacks his argumentation, and one of the most obvious ones of that is, is his own explanation of his authority, his apostolic authority. Look at chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, he's in, the author's including himself in the, the audience. He's, he's putting himself in, in the position of the audience, receiving what was originally proclaimed by the apostles, right? Proclaimed by the Lord first and then through the apostles to the audience. And so he would not, con this, is, this is different than what he says to Galatians and to the church in Galatia, or the, um, when he writes to the Galatian Christians, chapter 111, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And to me, that, that is a bit of a, a nail in the coffin, because he's so confident in his apostolic authority writing there, and then in here, he, it's as if he's, he's acknowledging, I received it just as you did. I received it from others, and I'm passing it along. So another alternative to Paul is, has been presented by Tertullian as early as the second century as well, presented the option of Barnabas. Now, in Acts chapter 4, you have Barnabas, and some of you know this. He's given a title there. Joseph, his, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas was a Levite a native of Cyprus. So you have that explanation of who Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. He's the son of encouragement, and he's a Levite. Well, as a, as a Levite, he would have been extremely familiar with the priesthood and the, and the sacrificial system. And then in Hebrews, you have an explanation of the letter at the very end that declares it to be a word of encouragement. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now that word of exhortation, the word is the exact same as the word translated encouragement uh, in explaining Barnabas. So you have the son of encouragement, seems to be a good candidate to give a word of encouragement to the people. Now, Paul's, he was also Paul's early missionary partner, so he would have had his own style and yet very similar theology and, and explanations. So there, where there's similarity with Paul, that makes sense. And again, as a Levite, he would have had extensive knowledge of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, that's, that's pretty much the argument for Barnabas. Uh, another very strong proponent was, was proposed by Luther, uh, Apollos. Uh, Apollos was put forward because in Acts chapter 18, 24, he is described as an Alexandrian Jew known for his eloquent speech. Hebrews is, is high. It's, it's really good Greek. It's superior Greek. And, and so if he's a man known for his eloquence, then it would make sense that he could potentially be the author of this letter. 
He was also a man in, in Paul's missionary sphere, would have known the same people, would have had the same friends, and so it's not rare for him to suggest that he would join Timothy in visiting the Hebrews, and that's what we find at the end of the letter. So this proposal from Martin Luther gathered, uh, garnered a lot of support during the Reformation. Others, like Calvin, actually pre uh, preferred to think of it as Luke or Clement of Rome, uh, who would have been a contemporary of the apostles. So those two are, those are the most frequently referenced uh, authors. You have Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, and Clement. But you could pretty much name any other person in the New Testament, and there's probably a theory that they wrote this letter. You have Peter, Jude, Stephen, Philip the deacon, Aristion, who's associated with the longer ending of Mark. As I mentioned earlier, Priscilla and Aquila, some have suggested Mary, and Epaphras. So, how do, we, how do we conclude this matter? I think Origen was right, and most commentaries reference this quote from Origen, who ultimate, ultimately concluded, who wrote it? God only knows, certainly. And so while any of these authors would be permissible and plausible, none of them have any impact upon the authority of this text. Edward Daring is right when he warns, as for my part, who wrote the epistle, I cannot tell, nor I see no cause why I should seek it. For if the Spirit of God had left it out, can I think it better if I should add it? So we might think it'd be helpful, and it, and it generally is helpful to know the author and to know something about the, the, the commitments of the author, the background of the author, and, and you know, just something of where they're coming from. We, we tend to spend time reflecting upon those things whenever we begin a, a sermon series in, in an epistle or, or somewhere where the author is obvious. But in cases like this where the author is not obvious, it should not cause fear and trepidation in recognizing that this is the word of God. Hebrews itself will, will credit David as the author of one of the Psalms he references in uh, Psalm 4-7, I mean Hebrews 4-7. This is, uh, again, he appoints a certain day today saying, through David so long ago in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he's quoting the Psalm that David penned, and in the previous time when he quoted it, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that's from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. So he's quoting the same psalm in two different passages. One area he says it's, the, it's authored by the Holy Spirit, and the other he's mentioning that it's from David. That's how we should understand God's word, that it, is, it does come to us through, uh, through a, a man, a person, but, it, but they are led by the Holy Spirit. So this is just as much the word of God as any of Paul's epistles. I think related to the idea, the question of authorship too, is, is the, the style in which it's, it comes to us. There is no salutation, as we said. I've been calling it a letter, and I've been calling it a message, and I've mentioned it was, it's, it's considered a sermon 
by many. It's sort of all of the above. I mean, Hebrews is, there's, there's no citation. The only other epistle like this would be 1 John. There's no uh, greeting up front. It just jumps right into this word of encouragement. Now, that phrase as well, which we just read in chapter 13, 22, as a word of encouragement in Acts 13, 15 is a reference to a sermon. Now, I'll just turn there. You don't have to go follow me there. But Acts 13, verse 15. We read, after the after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. This is speaking to, of Paul and Barnabas, who are in Antioch. Right, so they go to the synagogue. They, they sat down, and after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue send a message to Paul and Barnabas, and they say this, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So he's inviting them. The ruler of the synagogue is inviting these apostles to come forward and to share a word of encouragement. In other words, they're invited to give a sermon or a message to the audience. Now, later on in chapter 15 of Acts, 1531, the same word again appears. And when they had read it, it says, now we're talking about a letter, chapter, uh, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Okay, so the same word there in all three instances, and you have this idea here that this is a, a message, a word of encouragement, a sermon, a letter. And frankly, the early audience at this point would have considered those quite similar. A letter and a sermon, the, the way a letter would have been read was in front of the church, by the pastor, and explained. So you would have had very little difference between reading a letter and reading a sermon to the congregation. So the author does not follow a, a strict pattern, but it does seem like in Hebrews he has a background in delivering sermons, you know, at a, like for a synagogue in the, in the diaspora or in the scattered Jews who had been scattered around the region during exile. The author doesn't follow a strict pattern, but there are so many similarities. And if you do a rhetorical analysis of the book, as several commentators do, they, they find many patterns that are adopted from formal Greco-Roman trainings. You have uh, training in Cicero and Quintilian. There's actually similarities that are, that are found in the recorded sermons in Acts to the same kind of training. And so this makes sense, right? The disciples were preaching to people who were familiar with these classic standards of rhetoric. And yet it cannot fit precisely into a particular classical form or conventional form of speech. This likely indicates that the author was very familiar and comfortable with those forms because when you become comfortable, you learn when you can de deviate from them. It's, it's very similar to when you're training for ministry. Everyone sort of has their, their, the people that they try to, to, to emulate, right? They have their favorite pastor and their preacher, and they're just trying to sound exactly like them. And then they, they realize that until they get their own voice, they're, they're just going to not sound like themselves. They're not going to sound like they're, they're, they're um, they don't preach with authority. And so the degree that, that 
he felt comfortable and confident with the forms, he is deviating from them often in, the le- in this letter to the Hebrews. So Hebrews is preaching the Old Testament. It reads like a series of expository sermons on key Old Testament passages. The message is skillfully structured. It includes hook words that tie together two different blocks of material. It includes characteristic keywords throughout that, that tell you the themes. Um, his use of the Old Testament isn't so much a, an exegetical commentary of the passage, but over and over again, he, he reveals himself to be this trained preacher who has an explicit Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. So that wherever he is, whatever he's reading and pointing to, he's showing how it, how it was shadowing Christ. Now, while we cannot know for certain the author's identity, he assumes his audience knows and trusts him. But there's something even more fundamental that we should consider under the preaching of God's word. And I want to reference this as Heinrich Bollinger. He was the successor to the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. He's the author of the Second Helvetic Confession. He writes this, Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. And that neither any other word of God is to be invented, nor is it to be expected from heaven. And that now the word itself, which is preached, is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. As we're thinking about Hebrews, let us not get distracted so much with the author, the identity of the author, and let us recognize the divine authority that it commands. You see something similar in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 155, the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's a great summary of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do for the audience, right? It recognizes that God is always at work in the hearts of his people through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we come and to sit under the word of God, under the preaching of God's word, we are hearing from God. We expect to be transformed by that. We expect to be challenged by that message. We expect to be convicted. And so hear him as he speaks to you through his word. Pray that God would open up your heart to be transformed by the opening up of his word at the moment of its preaching. You know, when I used to think about preaching, I would, I would write down everything and then I would go home and I thought like I, I was going to apply it later on. Preaching is meant to be applied in the moment. The conviction is meant to sink in right now. 
It's meant to change your heart in the second that you hear it. The Spirit of God is at work. And so is there any good reason to neglect this means of grace? To not avail yourself to the preaching of God's word as often as you can. And so my prayer for you and for me and for all of us is that we would hear this sermon series. That, the, that the, he might use, God might use this as a means of driving us out of ourselves and drawing us unto Christ. Let's ask for his help in doing so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this letter that challenges us right from the beginning with some questions about authorship, some questions about structure and style. And we have a little more digging to do before we get directly into the text. Lord, I pray that as we make our way through this series, it would be a means of grace. It would be a means of you strengthening us, challenging us, enlightening us, convincing and humbling us, Lord, changing us, causing us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we meditate upon the truth in this book. Lord, equip us for the trials and temptations that await. Lord, there's many similarities to the original audience and our situation, whether it be a hostile culture, a rising sense of persecution upon the church, not just here, but around the world. And Lord, we want to be ready. We want to stand firm. And Lord, the, the overwhelming theme of this message is to look to Christ. To acknowledge his superiority, his supremacy over anything else. Lord, may that be our hope this morning. Even as we, we spend this weekend with family and friends and we celebrate the privilege of being in this nation, Lord, we also recognize, Lord, primarily the privilege of belonging to your family. And we have a responsibility to proclaim that truth to our neighbors. Lord, so may you equip us as we work our way through this series with a, a greater sense of confidence in your word, a greater sense of the authority of the gospel and of the supremacy of Christ in all things. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together the hymn, Be Still My Soul, hymn number 532.